your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. As we uh, continue our study through the book of Philippians, we come this morning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And these uh, verses come right on the heels of what we looked at last week where uh, Paul urged us and commanded us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we pick that up now, beginning at verse 14. Before we read, I'd like to invite you to bow with me as you ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we open up your word together this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, may the same light of illumination that gave life to these words on the pages of Scripture now shine in our hearts that we may understand these words, that we may hear and receive correctly the light of truth that you intended to shine through these words into our hearts. And may, as we hear and listen to them, may it bear fruit of change that would be for our good and for your glory. Oh, Lord, guard us from the enemy who would seek to darken and diminish and destroy the word of life. May he have no place in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The Apostle Paul says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not labor, run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. There are a few things more amazing, and I mean that in the, in the truest sense of that word, Amazing. There are, are few things more amazing than to go outside on a clear night someplace far away from the city lights and, and to gaze up into the sky against the black canopy of darkness. The stars shine in a dazzling display of light. This is the image that Paul places in front of us in our text this morning, the image that he wants us to, to have firmly planted in our minds, that as followers of Christ, we are to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world. As Paul puts it in his uh, instruction in these verses, the, the main goal of his instruction is that you may become children of God without fault in a crooked and warped generation among whom you shine like stars in the sky. 
And Paul, of course, was writing to uh, writing these words to the Philippian Christians who were living in the city of Philippi, which, as we have uh, seen in our previous studies, was a Roman colony that was steeped in the darkness of emperor worship. And so they were a morally bankrupt people who had no knowledge and no desire of the living God. And like the Philippians, we too find ourselves in the midst of a crooked and warped generation, a post-Christian culture that is increasingly anti-Bible and anti-God and anti-Christ. And like the Philippians, we are to shine like stars in this dark and depraved world. And this, of course, is a, is a common theme throughout the whole New Testament. One of the, you know, one of the most common images, in fact, throughout all, the, all of Scripture, is this idea of light in the darkness. And so uh, Jesus himself came, for example, Jesus himself came into our world as a light shining in the darkness. As John said in the prologue to his gospel, in him that is in Christ, in Christ who was the word, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And as Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And so there is this contrast between light and darkness, the two kingdoms, the two ways, the two realities. And now we who believe in Jesus are called to let his light shine in and through us. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you, so Jesus who himself is the light of the world, says to his followers, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul said to the Romans, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Paul said to the Ephesians, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so live as children of light. And we could go on with many more repeating the same idea and the same words. In the midst of a dark and depraved world, we are to shine like stars in the black night sky. This is what Paul is driving at in our text this morning. And the question that I want to explore with you uh, throughout this message is, is how do we do that? So if this is the main goal that Paul is, is driving at, that we shine like stars in a dark world, how do we do that? What does it look like for us from these verses? What does it look like for us to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and warped generation? That's where we're going this morning. Paul shows us in these verses three things uh, that will help us shine like stars in the darkness. The first, Paul says we shine like stars by living without grumbling and arguing. He says in verse 14, do everything, not, not occasionally, not do some of the things, but, but do everything. It's an all-inclusive word. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, or some translations say with, without grumbling and complaining. Well, here's a verse, isn't it, that, that every family ought to have posted on their refrigerators in their homes. And every church ought to have posted somewhere in their church building. And every person, every follower of Christ, ought to memorize and work daily to put into practice, do everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining. The words grumbling and arguing are vivid words 
that Paul uses here, uh, intentionally alluding uh, to the grumbling and complaining spirit of the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. You remember the story, right? How one day God performs this mighty and amazing, miraculous work of of deliverance, of, of drawing them from the clutches of Egypt. This mighty and amazing thing. One day and the next day, here's the Israelites grumbling and complaining about not having enough food and how they'd be better off back in Egypt. We read about it in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, we read the song of Moses and Miriam as they're standing on the shores of the Red Sea right after God did this amazing thing by uh, you know, appearing as a cloud of, of, of fire and, and as a pillar of, of cloud and fire, defending them from the, Egypt, the pursuing Egyptians, miraculously parting the, the sea so that it forms dry ground and they walk through and then he caused the waters to come crashing back down on the pursuing Egyptians and there they are standing on the shore after this mighty and and amazing act of deliverance, and they burst into a song of praise. In Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21, praising God for his mighty act of deliverance, this exodus from Egypt and the miraculous parting of the sea. And then just three verses later, when the people of Israel were only three days into their journey, they came to Marah where they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. And the writer says to the people, grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Three days after God had done this amazing thing. And they should have known if God had done that, can he not make water appear out of anywhere for us to drink? And so God made the water fit to drink for them by another miracle. And then he led them to this beautiful oasis of Elam. But then just a couple days later, there they are again, beginning to grumble because they're hungry. And the writer says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying to them, if only we had died in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. When you have a spirit of complaint, not only do you have a distorted view of the present, seeing things much more negatively than they really are, but you have a distorted view of the past, seeing things better than they actually were. Oh, if only we had, I mean, how, how twisted do you have to be to think, oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. Man, those 400 years of slavery were awesome. And so it went again and again, day after day, throughout the whole time of their wandering in the wilderness, grumbling and complaining the whole way. And that scene from that particular page in Israel's story puts on shameful display our sinful nature and how prone we are to grumbling and complaining and arguing. And now Paul sees the New Testament church as the people of the new exodus who have been delivered from a spiritual Egypt by the blood of Christ, the real Passover lamb, and they're on their way to the ultimate promised land. And he wants us desperately to learn from Israel's example. He wants us to get it right this time around. He wants us to stop grumbling and arguing and complaining. He wants us to see what God has really done. 
You see, the church at Philippi was repeating some of the same mistakes of those wandering Israelites, and we don't know what the exact issues were, but there was a spirit of grumbling and dispute among them. They were quick to defend themselves and quick to point out the negatives in others, and it may be that like the Israelites, they were quick to blame and criticize and accuse the spiritual leaders among them. In fact, that maybe that's what some scholars think. That's why Paul explicitly mentions deacons and overseers in his introduction to the letter, because there's an issue with the people grumbling and complaining like the Israelites did against Moses and Aaron, now grumbling and complaining against the overseers of the church at Philippi. In our fallen condition, it is so easy for us to develop a spirit of complaint. We see it all the way from, you know, from, from young ones all the way up to, to the elderly. I heard a comedian a number of years ago talking about how quick we are to grumble and complain. And he was talking specifically about flying and how everyone always complains about the flight. You know, we ask somebody, well, you know, how was your flight? Oh, it was awful. It was, it was horrible. I had to, it took us 20 minutes to board the plane, you know, waiting there for 20 minutes at, you know, at the gate. Once I was on the plane, we were sitting there for almost a half hour before the plane ever got up into the air. It was horrible. Once you were flying, the drink cart didn't have any ginger ale. It was ridiculous, horrible. And the comedian says, really, that that's all you can think to say after experiencing the wonder of flight? He says, did you ever stop, even stop to think that you were flying through the air incredibly like a bird? That you're sitting in a chair in the sky, 30,000 feet above ground, hurtling 600 miles per hour through the air, and all you can say to, think to say about it is, oh, they didn't have the drinks that I wanted, and it took us too long to get up in the air. If we are going to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world, we can begin by striving to do everything without grumbling and arguing. What a refreshing thought that is. What a, what a wonderful family that would be, right? <laughs> to have a family that does everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining. To have a church that does everything without grumbling and arguing and bickering and complaining. To stop all the criticizing, all the complaining, all the bickering, all the disputing. To live in harmony with one another. That's the positive aspect of this, this command not to grumble and complain. Living in harmony with one another. Showing mutual respect for one another. Putting the needs of others above your own. When we do everything without grumbling and arguing, we'll stand out from the rest of the world. Because there are so many people who are so quick to complain in the world. If we do everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining, we will stand out from the rest of the world. We will, like sh we will shine like stars in the sky. The second way that we shine like stars in the world flows right out of the first, and that is by becoming blameless and pure. You see, as Paul states it uh, in these verses, this, is, uh, uh, th this blamelessness and purity is the result of doing everything without grumbling and arguing. So the two statements are connected. The first one is a command where Paul gives the command in verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. And then he gives the result of the command in verse 15. The result is so that you may become blameless and pure. And the word appear is a translation of a Greek word that means uh, that means simple or, or unmixed. And so to be morally pure is literally to be without a mixture of evil. 
Uh, Paul, I think we see, uh, have some clarity on this when Paul uses the same word in Romans 16, verse 19, where he says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent. And the word innocent is the same word that he uses here in Philippians. Innocent, unmixed, pure. Innocent about what is evil. And so at the heart of purity then is this idea of, of separation and, and distinction from that which is evil. I think we see this clearly in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he warns uh, uh, the believers and, and, and uh, the people of Corinth. The city of Corinth was, was just sort of this uh, melting pot of, of everything pagan, right? It was a, at, every, at every, every turn, every corner, there was, a, there was a, 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 a pagan temple, pagan worship, and there was idolatry at every turn. There was a promiscuity. There was sexual immorality. Everywhere you looked and everywhere you turned, it was just this thoroughly uh, pagan and immoral city. And so Paul writes to the believers who are living in this uh, corrupted and darkened place, this darkened culture, and he warns them not to be influenced and shaped and contaminated by the ways of this pagan immorality and idolatry that were so rampant in the city of Corinth. And this is what he says. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And no, he's not talking about marriage. That's not the context. It may apply. You may apply it to marriage, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living in the midst of a culture that is darkened uh, by immorality and saying, don't be contaminated by their ways. So do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. That's what it means to be pure, separate, distinct, not contaminated by the evil that is around us. We shine like stars when we remain unmixed with the evil of the world. And in the, in the immediate context of, of this uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians here, it means not acting like the world in our relationships with one another. That it's not succumbing to that grumbling and complaining spirit of, of arguing and bickering and dissension and hostility. Uh, in his uh, farewell address at the edge of the promised land, Moses recounted the ways of God with his wayward people. So just to get that picture in your head, Moses leads the grumbling Israelites throughout all their, their wandering through the wilderness, and they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining every step of the way. God has told Moses himself at this point that he himself is not going to make it to the promised land because of his own sin, and so it's just this sort of, you know, downer all the way around, right? And so Moses is now at the threshold of the promised land, and he gives his farewell speech, his farewell address to the grumbling Israelites. And this is one of the things that he said to them. Uh, to the Israelites, uh, about the Israelites who grumbled and complained on their journey. He said of them, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. And you see, now Paul takes these words of Moses and, and he reverses them. He says the Philippian believers have a chance to turn these words inside out. So stop your grumbling and complaining, Paul says. Do everything without grumbling and complaining so that you may become the opposite of corrupt. So that you may become blameless and pure. And then he says, instead of acting like those who are not children of God, you will show yourselves to be children of God without fault. And instead of yourself being yourselves a warped and crooked generation... 
You will stand out among those who are a warped and crooked generation. In the forests of northern Europe and Asia, there's a, a little animal that's called the ermine. And the ermine is known for its pure white fur in the winter. And, and the ermine instinctively and fiercely protects its white coat against anything that would, that would soil it or, or dirty it. And in fact, it is, it is obsessed with keeping its white fur clean. So much so that fur hunters have picked up on this peculiar trait of the ermine and they have taken advantage of it, uh, of, this, of this trait in their, their hunting and in their trapping. And so instead of setting traps to try to capture the ermine, they find the ermine's home, which is uh, not that hard to do because it's often uh, either uh, clefts in a rock or a, a hollow in a tree, and so they're pretty easy to spot. And so they find the ermine's home, and then they smear the entrance with mud and dirt and grime. And what happens is then they, they go out hunting with their dogs, and the dogs will find an ermine, and the ermine instinctively, of course, flees for it, towards its home. And the moment it gets to its home, it, sees, it finds its entrance all, you know, covered with filth and, and grime, and it will not go in because it will not get its fur dirty. And so instead, we'll turn around and we'll face the, the pursuing dogs, and of course, then it's easily captured. As one writer put it, for the ermine, purity is more precious than life. And Paul, in his instruction here, is urging us to be like the ermine in our passion for purity. That we are to remain unsoiled by the evil of the world. And it will be hard. I mean, it'll be intensely hard because it means always going against the flow, doesn't it? It means saying no to things when, when everybody else around us is saying yes. It means not watching things that other people are watching and not allowing our, our kids to have things that other kids have. It means subjecting yourself to opposition. It means having the discernment to tell truth from lies. And then not only having the discernment to, to tell the difference between truth and lies, but then having the courage to stand up for the truth when everybody else in the world is dancing to the music of the lies. Just like Daniel's friends did in Babylon. By refusing to bow to that image of gold, even though it meant getting thrown into the blazing furnace. We shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world when we walk in blamelessness and purity, unmixed with the evil of the world. And that brings us then to our last way that, we, that Paul says we shine like stars. <clears throat> and that is that we shine like stars by holding firmly to the word of life. Paul says in verses 15 and 16, he says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And to hold firmly to the word of life is to have an unrelenting and an uncompromising devotion to the truths of Scripture. And it begins by having an unyielding commitment to the full authority of Scripture over all of life. And I believe that this is the most urgent and pressing need in the life of the church today. There is a battle raging between the spirit of the world and the spirit of Christ, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And at the heart of the battle, at the, at the heart of the battle is a battle over the content of this book. 
if we compromise in any way our devotion to the full authority and truth of God's word, we give the enemy a foothold. Which is why, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, that the weapon that we have to fight against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the only offensive weapon that Paul lists in his whole list of, of armor that we are to put on, the only one that we fight with offensively and actively is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. And it grieves me to say that so many in the church are losing the battle. They're getting drawn into the darkness by their failure to hold firmly to the word of life. They are accommodating to the spirit of the world instead of standing against it. They are blending in with the darkness instead of shining like stars in the midst of it. They are embracing the subtle and the seductive lies of the enemy instead of holding firmly to the word of life and battling him with it. And they are among those who will say to Christ on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name, O Lord, teach and and preach and pray and, and serve in your kingdom and lead conferences and do all these things in your name? Did we not do that? And the Lord Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. To hold firmly to the word of life is to cling fiercely to the truths of Scripture without compromise and without apology and without wavering. It is only as we hold firmly to the word of life that we shine like stars in a dark and depraved world. And it's only as we hold firmly to the word of life that we win the battle and receive the inheritance of the kingdom. And I have to say, you know, I... I find myself coming back to this again and again, and it's, it's because I think it's where God has me. It's where, it's where Scripture takes us again and again, and it's where I am in my spiritual walk as I strive to be a faithful shepherd and pastor of this church in the world today. But he keeps taking me back there again and again, and it's close to my heart because I believe one of the greatest threats to the church today is a strand of of what I would call progressive Christianity that compromises or flat out denies the full authority of Scripture and accommodates to the spirit of the age. And I'm seeing it all over the place. It is like a deadly virus that is infecting unsuspecting professing Christians. And at the bottom of it, it is a brand of Christianity that comes straight from the devil using the same kind of deception that he used in the garden, questioning God and his word and whispering in the ears of any who will listen, did God really say? Is that, is that what God really meant when he said, does God's word really say that? Did God really say this? Or ought we now read it with different eyes and might it mean something else? Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Did God really say, did he really mean it when he said that he would send people to everlasting punishment in hell? What makes this new wave of progressive Christianity so dangerous is that there are so many professing Christians who are not firmly grounded in the truths of Scripture and who find this false version of Christianity so attractive because they can still hold on to their so-called Christian faith while shedding many of the things that make Christianity so offensive to the world and so unappealing to the senses. They can still cling to their Christian profession and their Christian identification 
while adopting the seductively appealing but anti-biblical spirit of the world. And that is straight from the enemy. And we need to be on guard against it in the church. Francis Schaeffer addressed this very issue uh, remarkably almost 40 years ago in his book called The Great Evangelical Disaster, which is a, a, a great book. And though it was written so long ago, the message of the book is, is absolutely piercingly relevant for the church today. In fact, when I read it, it's almost as if it was written yesterday, written today. It is written for the church today. Schaefer said, and I'm going to just give you a few lengthy quotes because I think it is so relevant from, for this text and so relevant to where the church is at. And so bear with me as I uh, share these quotes with you. So Schaefer said, here is the great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world to stand for biblical truth. There's only one word for this, he says, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. 1984. If that was true then, how much more is it true now? He goes on to describe this accommodation as a bending of the Bible to conform to the pattern of the world. And for some, he says, that accommodation is intentional and conscious. But for many more, it involves what he calls an unreflective acquiescence to the prevailing spirit of the age. That is what is so dangerous about it, an unreflective acquiescence to the prevailing spirit of the age. If we are not firmly grounded in the truths of Scripture, this is what's going to happen. We are going to, in an unreflective way, acquiesce to the, to the prevailing spirit of the age and all sorts of issues in our culture around us. We need to be firmly grounded in the truths of God's word. At the heart of the matter, Schaefer said, is an uncompromising devotion to God's word. And so here's another lengthy quote. He says, obedience to God's word is the watershed. The watershed being the, the, the dividing line, the thing that separates faithful biblical Christianity from this false version. He says, uh, obedience to God's word is the watershed. And this means living in obedience to the full inerrant authority of the Bible in the crucial moral and social issues of the day, just as much as in the area of doctrine. The failure of the evangelical world to take a clear and distinctively biblical stand on the crucial issues of the day can only be seen as a failure to live under the full authority of God's word in the full spectrum of life. Which is, I think, precisely why I believe God has me where he has me and has had me for quite some time now and keep coming back to these same things because this is what the church needs. And so... Schaefer says in his conclusion, what we need in light of this accommodation about us is a generation of radicals for truth and for Christ. Is that not what we need? This need that he identified nearly 40 years ago is all the more pressing and all the more urgent today. We need in our culture in our age right now, the church needs a generation of radicals for truth and for Christ as we engage culture on current issues like, like race and justice and immigration and abortion and gender and sexuality. We have to do so with an uncompromising devotion to scripture as the only authoritative rule, regardless of how we feel about these issues, regardless of what other voices around us are saying, Scripture has to be our guiding voice, the only authoritative rule in all of these issues. If we bend Scripture to conform to culture, we cease to be the church. 
We need to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world, and we shine like stars only, only as we hold firmly to the word of life. Plato once said, we can easily forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. May we not live as those who are afraid of the light. But may we, with, with boldness and with courage, let the light of Christ shine in and through us. May we shine like stars in a dark and depraved world as we do everything without grumbling and arguing and complaining, becoming blameless and pure, holding firmly to the word of life. Let's bow together. Well, Lord, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, Lord, search our hearts and our minds. And if there is any way, O oh Lord, that we have become mixed with evil, become tainted and impure, become uh, compromised with the prevailing spirit of the age in our world, O oh Lord, expose it to us. And may we repent of it. And may we let your light, O oh Lord, the light of your truth and your word shine in and through us. And may we do so with passion, with clarity, with conviction, with unwavering and uncompr un uncompromising devotion. O oh Lord, hear our silent prayers of response. Well, Lord, as the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, Lord, the prince of darkness is at work blinding the minds of those who do not believe so they cannot see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But as Paul goes on to say, God, who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts and the hearts of those who believe to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Lord, we, who through faith in Christ have been given this light of the knowledge of God's glory, 
May we let it shine in and through us as we strive to be the church in this dark world. May we do everything without grumbling and arguing, becoming blameless and pure, keeping ourselves unmixed and separate and distinct from the evil of the world as we hold firmly, clinging fiercely to the word of life. Oh, Lord, may it be so in us, and may we, from this day forward, shine ever brighter with you, the, the light of your truth and the light of your life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.